Will Brendel is an AI research scientist and has been working across various startups and big tech companies for the past 15 years. Ever used visual search on the Amazon app or put dog ears on yourself using the lens on Snap? Well, you can thank him for that. Tune in to learn about what it's like to be a research scientist, trends in the field, and challenges that need to be resolved for widespread adoption. Well, I'm really excited to dive into this podcast with you. So the very first question I have for you is people know that you're an accomplished research scientist and tech exec. You've worked at big companies, you've founded startups, but something people might not realize about you is that you're also a cartoonist. Can you tell me about some of the cartoons you've been drawing and what inspired it? So long story short, when the AI buzz was coming out about LLMs and especially ChatGPT and the acquisition by Microsoft, everyone was about on LinkedIn and other social media about AI in general. And it was such a war between the naysayer and the over-optimistic that it became really politicized and frustrating. And so instead of raging on people's posts, I decided to express my frustration with art. That's a healthy way to channel things. And not to piss people off. During the 10, 15 years you've been in the thick of things in AI, can you think of any other time periods that felt similar to now in terms of hype and public awareness of things? I can't. I think it's for the first time in AI history, basically the community gets so much exposure to the masses in almost a political campaign way. People always fought for their research papers, their ideas, but all of that politics stayed internal. You would talk to some professors or some labs and lobby for your work, get internships or get your interns getting internships or get sabbatical, publish results, get grants. That was the normal process. Then the giants slowly started to make AI as a commodity. AWS with recognition, Google with TensorFlow and their TPUs, and so on and so forth. But it was still very under the hood of any products. People were not talking about AI, they were talking about products. And basically, the first boom was when we saw some really cool generative AI on the image and video side, one of them being pioneered by Adobe. It was a micro boom, but we didn't see any startups popping up out of it. Really, it was just a cool factor. And then when Microsoft acquired OpenAI, that's where things got nasty and got a massive exposure. Going back in time then, when you were starting in graduate school, what drew your attention to computer vision in particular? Why that versus other aspects of the world? Oh, it's almost a failure. (laughs) I didn't end up in that field by choice. Funny story, I came at Oregon State University as an exchange student. And I wanted to do computer graphics because my heart was lying into animation studios. I'm a huge Pixar fan, born and raised with Walt Disney. And that's what I wanted my career to be, mix art with technology. And one of my friends that I met over there completely randomly, who came exactly from the same school in France, said, oh, but I'm doing AI. Why don't you also interview with my professor in AI? to see if he wants to take you under the hood. So I go there and interview with that professor. And that professor literally told me that French people are not good at mathematics, AI. (laughs) That basically wouldn't be a good fit, which was, I I don't know what it said about my friend who was French as well, but he has a successful career as well. So I was like, okay, if you don't want to take me, I'll stick to my original love, which is infographics. And then slowly but surely, the professor who took me under his wings was an image processing guy, Eric Mortensen. 
She works at NVIDIA now. Extremely bright guy, fantastic coder. I learned a lot from him. And at that time, we're talking about early 2000. Processing was the big thing. Not so much AI, but sound and image processing because in terms of product, it was more appealing and, and it was a little bit more mature. You could have a lot of applications, but in AI, applications were really constrained. And for political reasons, he didn't get tenure. And so in the middle of my PhD, I had to switch advisors and I got bounced back to AI more and more, back to the dark side. And I ended up with a committee who was hardcore AI professors, Alan Firm, Tom Dietrich, and my advisor, Sinisha Todorovic, who are rock stars in the field. But the guy who didn't want me wasn't part of my committee. And that's kind of funny that I ended up in AI regardless. Yeah, that's a great way to fail up, upwards at least. Then. What did you end up writing your dissertation on? It was about video understanding. So now fast forward to 2010, to give you a perspective, two, three years before that, it was the boom of Facebook. And 2012 was the first successes of deep learning. And when I say successes, I don't disband applications like Lenet or what Jeff Hinton and Yann LeCun did in the past at all, but it was a massive comeback. So 2010 was in the middle of those two key dates, big boom in social media and big boom in AI infrastructure. At that time, applications in my field were about video security, automatic rigging in for animation mm -hmm. studios, video editing, things like that. Now, if you were to enter into a PhD program now, is there an um, area within the AI world that you'd love to spend five years thinking about? Don't tempt me. <laughs> yeah, it's such a vast field. And just as a recap, you have AI as a massive field and inside you have many subfields like machine learning and inside right. machine learning, you have many fields like computer vision, natural language processing, and so on and so forth. But AI was born out of necessity right after World War II, pretty much during the Turing era, simply to come up with a technology to scale what human couldn't do, which was encrypting, decrypting, deciphering, conducting intel on the enemy during the Cold War and all of that. So AI is really like a field which is a hybrid, a dirty hybrid of many other fields, mathematics, physics, like many fields like went in to contribute to AI. So if I had the choice, I would definitely spend more time on the theory of AI because it's a field that is always has been massively engineered from the get-go to produce results. And while a lot of people spend time on the theory side, compared to other fields, they really spend a lot of time in engineering. And I think that's one of the things that is lacking, understanding AI, solving certain problems in AI, hard, P complete, really adding a lot of theoretical analysis around it so that we don't see trends like, hey, the more layers and parameters, the better, but truly trends that make sense. The trends we saw recently was like, hey, if I add more horsepower to my car, that car is going to go faster. And I'm like, duh, but that car will never go to the moon. And the wheels are going to explode if it gets too fast. Exactly. I understand that there's a race to have models being longer and longer and longer and expecting better results. But that's not the way to go. You don't yeah. say to an athlete, hey, if you get drugs, you're going to run faster. Yeah, well, maybe in the short term, but eventually after 10 years of Tour de France, you're going to get caught. I'm not naming anyone, but that's just reality. I really wished that you had more grounding around the field and more theoretical interest than just chasing the millions. 
From that perspective, looking back on all the different projects you've done, either independently at startups and big companies, is there a favorite project you've had during that time that you recall fondly? That's a very interesting question. A favorite project? I'm a mathematician at core, so I like things that are elegant. Despite what your professor at Oregon State thought? Despite that, I like when the solution involves tricks and aspects that you're like, oh, wow, it's really outside the box. And so that's why when I read papers from MIT or those places, it's always beautiful to read mm -hmm. papers. There's an art and poetry in reading an elegant solution in the field of mathematics and AI. So one of the projects I worked on was at Snap. And the challenge was, on one hand, we have a lot of dead users. A dead user is a user that signed up for the platform and then after two weeks has no engagement. We know that after 10 days or two weeks of no engagement, with over 90 something probability, that user will never come back. And that's really problematic because reviving the dead is way harder than conquering the new one. And so on one hand, they wanted to tackle that problem. On the other hand, they wanted to do it in a privacy and security way. And because the intuition was to say, hey, for that dude who joins the platform to engage a lot, we need to build quickly an ecosystem around that guy, meaning his friends have to be on the platform. So let's suggest him a lot of friends. But this had very strong implication on the privacy-wise because you could run attacks on the friend network of that person to reveal the identity. And this came out of a couple of scandals on other social media platforms where yeah. famous people and politicians got their identity un unraveled because of who they were connected to. Let's assume you want to hide your identity shake you join a platform under a pseudonym, and then you connect with me, you connect with your friends. By intersection, I don't need to know your name to know who you are. And so we wanted to really to protect against that. And we came up with like a real elegant privacy preserving solution that would make it hard for people to hack who you are by friendship network. And when we put it in production, Snap got, if I recall, the numbers 14% less dead users and 7% oh. more user created. So massive numbers in terms of revenue for Snap. So oh. I was really proud of myself. I didn't get any credit. Only the production team, the, <laughs> the engineering team that pressed the button that's put it on the cloud gets the credit. But the paper is still out there. Well, thank you for your critical work, Wolf. You mentioned your work at Snap, and you've also worked at a couple other giant companies, including Google and Amazon, in very similar roles as a research scientists. I'm wondering, of those three companies, because they have such different business cultures, I worked at Amazon myself, how do you think the business culture of the company impacted the direction of the research science? And was one place more fun than the others as a scientist? That's an awesome question. A true R&D lab is completely shielded from politics and production constraints. They have their own timeline, and depending who you work for, you're responsible for integration or part of the integration. That's the cool thing. The not so cool thing is when the company is saying, hey, we want to make more money, hence your R&D lab is going to become an engineering team, and now you're going to be a subject to the same roles as everyone. And within that respect, 100%, the company culture has a huge impact. At Google at that time, it was the rise of YouTube in terms of revenue. Finally, Google managed yeah. to understand how to scale that network and make money. 
it was also about the time where Eric Schmidt just gave back the keys back to Lauren Sergey. And every Friday they had the TGIF, Lauren Sergey would go on stage and we, we would have snacks in the auditorium and listen to them for a couple of hours. And that was fantastic. That was true leadership. Amazon, they were giving you rules, guidelines about leadership. You had a matrix of qualities you could pick and how they would impact your career and an example of it. It was very data-driven and very honest. A lot of people say, oh, Amazon is a brutal environment to work at. And I'm like, yeah, but they're honest about it. You know who Jeff Bezos is. He's not a liar. He's not sugarcoating anything. Everything is upfront. And I really, really like that. You can't complain if you know in advance what you're putting to, your, to fit into. I have a lot of respect for that, despite all the dysfunctional things that I witnessed over there. And Snap was more like young, bro, LA culture that has also pros and cons. It was fantastic because you work with a lot of young talent that really think outside the box, talented designers, truly a company led by designer product, which is very rare. And I fully embrace that. On the other hand, it can come with a little bit of immaturity, but there's no perfect world. At Snap, just to give you an example, the very first years, our offices were on warehouses on the beach. And it means that those warehouses had showers. So every morning, I would serve from 6 to 8 or 7 to 9, take a shower in the office and go down. And sometimes, Bobby, the CTO, would have a meeting with the team a little bit early or some people in the team and would see me coming back, dripping my surfboard, getting a shower and coming down. And he fully embraced that as well. It was not a problem for him because productivity was there. Once they moved the entire office back in land, more like in Santa Monica, to have a more corporate culture, I think we lost a lot of things. Let's say I'm a research scientist and I'm interviewing at different companies right now outside of the major ones. What are two or three things I should be evaluating these companies with to know if it'll be a good place to add to my resume? That's a fantastic question as well. Ethics is one, especially in the era of AI. Are they after the money or are they after the product? And within that product, what are they using AI for? And does it have also an aspect of doing good for the people? You can see on LinkedIn, there's like, thousands of companies that spin off AI for a tiny aspect of marketing, which ends up with two things. Number one, AI influencers, they will give you every week the brand new cheat sheet about the top 100 productive AI product that will speed up your day. And I'm telling you, if you need 100 of product to speed up your day, you're going to fail. So I would evaluate that. And also, I would definitely evaluate the founders, especially if it's a startup where they're coming from, what are their successes, what's their mentality, what's their type of leadership, do they have a roadmap, and so on and so forth. Looking at roles at different companies, most companies are very much scrambling to find AI talent right now, which has been leading to a lot of people from non-AI backgrounds to start pivoting their careers. Let's say I'm a PM or a software engineer that is new to AI. What would be some of the things that would surprise me and that I should take with a grain of salt? You could go back to school and get a PhD, but I believe that that's not on the table. Or you could be really more on the application side. And on the application side, I would really be as objective as possible about the technology and the use case. And this starts with the data you put in the technology. Too often, AI is taken as a magic black box. 
Mm-hmm. Some people even believe that those large LLMs, they have a will of their own. Man, it's just gradient descent, right? Backprop on the algorithm, we know how it works. It's not because it has a set of a billion parameters that most of them we don't understand that it's magical. So I would really take the technology with a grain of salt and take the time with the data and the technology to validate the use case. One of the key aspects, especially in the AI, is also defining your product market fit really well. I'm going to give you two examples. If you work for a car company or you want to send rockets in the space, right? But let's say a car company and you do AI, you know your tolerance to error is close to zero. Because if the car hits someone, it's the car manufacturer liability if you want an autopilot. That means you shouldn't have an AI solution on the cloud for cars. I hope that's not what they're doing. Because <laughs> if their clouds goes down, then you're screwed. On the other hand, if you work for a company like Snap, the key aspect is not ultra precision. The key aspect is entertainment. So if you have a model that puts some augmented reality dog ears on the top of your face and it's glitchy, it's almost like going to add some fun into the experience. But it has to be real time. So the focus is different. When you want to shift to that industry and you want to learn more about AI, I would also strongly suggest to educate yourself about the use case of AI and what to use and when, because that's where you're going to get the most juice out of it. Now, uh, a couple of things you mentioned were the effects of black box applications and ethics as well. And there's been a lot of awareness around that right now from a risk assessment perspective, especially with the EU AI Act coming up and a lot of the White House uh, announcements. And some of the most vocal things have been taking inspiration from the cybersecurity industry and especially for generative AI applications doing red teaming work for risk assessment and management. Do you have any opinions on the best ways that you've seen AI and production being assessed for risk and managed? I have not seen it. I gave a talk in 2017 at one of the aerospace building from the government. And I was presenting, I was the shiny toy, I was presenting a use case of AI for entertainment. But one of the, I want to say general, mm-hmm. an army dude, very high rank, had the presentation right after. And he was showing how by changing one pixel in an image, you could change the decision of a computer, for example, for object detection. And he said, that's a massive threat because now it's super easy to hack and change a pixel. And you can impact the technology in a way that could be detrimental. If you have drones in the middle of Afghanistan supporting soldiers, but for whatever reason, the enemy could, with billboards, impact those drones, something as simple as that, that's direct security, right? And it's a bridge within the model, the way the model is constructed. And this was in 2017, right? They were really aware of that. And what, seven years after, even after the big buzz of LLM, what we realized is that really companies rush to ship products, but they don't really spend a lot of interest in security at all. So those models are still very much hackable by tweaking a little bit the data and making them hallucinate. I just talked to a very dear friend of mine last week, and she said she will join OpenAI to work on that. They were actually recruiting to build a cybersecurity team that would work on their models and making sure that it's harder to hack them. Yeah, it becomes a national security risk almost immediately. The very last question I have for you, Will, is after doing so many cool things over the years, what are you up to now? Tell us about some of the projects you're working on. Hey, Chan. 
I'm much interested in using AI to help people, especially in the domain of healthcare. Right now, I am having a bunch of projects using AI to make, for example, healthcare systems, CRMs, dashboards, much more efficient for companies at lower cost, providing companies technology that is HIPAA compliant, starting with analytics and using AI to provide the insights in terms of action plans versus like pie charts and numbers. And also using AI to build a, a suite of softwares that can be used in prisons to better manage inmates, their meal, their healthcare need. Because one of the things they noticed is that you get an inmate coming into a prison. Most of prison, very surprisingly, are still on paper. So that inmate has all the health record on paper. Half of oh. the time that box is left on the tarmac when they transfer that inmate and they cannot turn back to get it for security reason. And so one of the goal is to digitize all of that and to use AI to improve their services. For example, automatic scheduling of healthcare provider for those inmates, whether they are using virtual service or in person, improving their diet and their meals, but also at a lower cost for the prison and so on and so forth. So doing some health and wellness assessment of their body and mind as well. And based on that, try to have a system that reintegrate them in life in a better way that they came into the prison. That's amazing work, especially when you're working on the prison project, but really with any sensitive populations that you as a researcher might have trouble interacting with. How do you, as you develop things, make sure you're getting enough customer feedback and building the right approach? We're still very early stage, so that's right now hard to tell. But if that project becomes successful, we'll have to be in person over there and interview the people. I'm a huge believer in human interactions. I think that's also one of the things that people are losing sight today with the digital world and AI. When I see such a big push for augmented reality and virtual reality, as if, literally as if the Facebook, Meta, and Google of the world took the book or the movie Ready Player One, Knowing the story, right? Knowing willingly the story and say, but that sounds so cool. There are so many millions and billions to be made. And I'm like, yeah, but the guys in the company that are making that money are the bad guys in the, in the book. Yeah, but it wouldn't be cool to make a lot of money. But yeah. in terms of product they want to develop, it's almost like they're taking that book as a blueprint. I'm a huge believer of human interaction. I'm French, so I love going to the market, buying my groceries, talking to the people who grow their carrots, and so on and so forth. And so what I suspect is that in the future, we'll have AI helping you achieving tasks that cavemen were doing it intuitively. In a sense, you'll have AI to organize your life so that you could buy real carrots on the plant field, which literally 50,000 years ago, they were doing it. So it's yeah. like evolution is providing more technology for a service that was always there, but that we lost along the way with technology. It's kind of like Amazon killing the book industry and now reopening bookstores. Well, going to a farmer's market is always a great idea, but thank you so much for sharing about your background and what you're up to. I'll be excited to keep talking to you next couple of months and see how those projects evolve. Thanks again, man. Thanks again, man. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. 
Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 